Well, I wonder what this um, pulpit would feel like in my 60s. It feels the same. So open your Bibles, if you will, to uh, the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. This, this, this is a letter. It's a short letter, four chapters, that the Apostle Paul writes to, to one of his own churches. This is a church he founded some seven, eight, nine years before. Uh, this was the first church there in Philippi when he came over in, into Europe. This is the church that he really protected them from persecution in the very beginning, dear to his heart. Now, now, Paul, at this time, uh, he's in trouble. I mean, he's in official trouble. He's been arrested by Rome. He's in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to get out dead or alive. That's why in chapter 1 of the letter, he says, I want to exalt Christ, whether it's living or, or in death. I, I, for me to live is Christ, to die is, is, is gain. Well, Paul always was in trouble. It's said that when he entered into a new little village, he'd first check out the jail, because knowing in a couple days, that's where he'd be spending the night. But now this is official. He's in official Roman trouble. He, this is serious reversals to his life, to his ministry. No longer the freedom to move about. Uh, people are mocking him outside. Even Christians are, are mocking him. He, he ought to be bathed in depression. And that's what his, his home church thought. And so 600 miles away, when they hear that their founding pastors in prison in Rome, they send one of their pastors to 600 miles on foot all the way to Rome to try to encourage poor Paul who would be all depressed. Well, when Epaphroditus shows up in Rome to Paul, he realizes Paul's not all depressed. As a matter of fact, Paul's pretty joyful. Now remember, joy is the word karas, the absence of being afraid. Paul, Paul, Paul wasn't fearful. And what's interesting, usually joy is connected with peace. Because joy is the absence of fear. Peace is the presence of, of rest. And so Paul is, is joyful and peaceful. And, and yet he gets now bummed out because he hears all these folks in his home church that they're all bathed in concern and fear. So he turns Epaphroditus around, sends him back with this letter to share with his folks how he's put himself in a place that the Spirit of God can produce this joy and peace. This is not a book of platitudes. Paul is speaking out of his own life. This is how he does it. And it's interesting, he realizes that joy and peace is something supernatural, unnatural, paranatural, whatever you want to call it. You can't drum it up. You can't self-hypnose and say, okay, I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm going to be at rest. I'm going to be at rest. I'm going to be at rest. It doesn't work that way. It's produced supernaturally by the Spirit of God. But how do you put yourself in a place so the Spirit of God can produce the absence of fear and the presence of, of, of rest? Paul, in these four chapters, 16 times he'll talk about the mind, what happens between the ears. Ten times he talks about the mind. Five times he talks about the way we think. One time he talks about the way we remember. It's the interpretation of what is going on around us by our minds that puts us in a place that the Spirit of God can produce this thing. And here in chapter 2, Paul gives us the anchor to the whole thing. The way we look around and interpret around us the very things that will create fear, he tells us how to get rid of this addiction that just sucks the life out of all of us. And this addiction that we are all born with is this addiction to self. I'm so concerned about preserving myself. I'm so concerned that I get my part of what's good. I'm so concerned that I get treated a certain way with importance. 
And it's the fact that I'm grabbing and grinding and trying so hard because I'm all about me that creates all the fear and all the unrest around me. The only thing that can dislodge me from this addiction to self that creates all these fears in my life and misery is to understand some handles on this, this humility thing. Now, is humility something you are? Or is humility something you do? You know the old thing. They say, well, we all try to be humble, and the moment we think we are, we lost it. It's kind of like you, you can never say, I am a humble man. Because the moment you say you're humble, you're not. But is it really that elusive? Because Jesus, he describes himself as humble. As a matter of fact, the only place in the entire scripture that Jesus ever describes himself, himself, is in Matthew chapter 11. Remember when Jesus says, now take up my yoke, which is, which is light, and, and learn from me. Remember the yoke was a teaching instrument. You, you took a, a veteran oxen and you yoked them up to a rookie oxen and the rookie learned from the veteran. It was a learning instrument. And so Jesus says, you know, I, I, I want you to learn something from me. Yoke up to me. Get this thing from me. And he says, for I am gentle and humble. I am gentle and humble. Humility is the attitude. Gentleness is what it looks like. He says, I am humble. I do the humility thing. It's not something you are. It's something you do. If I, I, if I told you I'm a runner, isn't that believable? <laughs> I'm a runner. You go, oh, really? You're run- yeah, I'm a runner. Well, well, where do you run? Oh, no place, really. Well, how often do you run? Well, hardly ever. No, 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 excuse me. If you're a runner, it be- means you run. You do the running thing. If you run, you're a runner. If you swim, you're a swimmer, right? If you speak, you're a speaker. If you do the humility thing, then you're humble. If you don't do humility, you're not humble. It's not something you are. It is something you do. And either you do it or you don't. And it doesn't disappear when you do it. And so Jesus can declare himself, I am humble, and it doesn't disappear. And so here the Apostle Paul in this anchor passage of chapter 2, Paul's going to explain exactly how Jesus taught us, caused us to learn from him how to do the humility thing so that we indeed can be humble. Notice, pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, I mean any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy. He says, empathy. He says, if there's any reality to the fact that Jesus Christ changes lives, changes hearts, changes the way we think, changes the way we, we, we respond to the world around us, he says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. He says, the way we're going to see that we really have experienced a change, it's going to be in the way we treat each other. It's going to be the way we view each other. It's going to be, what are we all about? And it has to do with each other. Notice he says, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or empty conceit. The word empty conceit means empty opinion. (laughs) And I'll tell you, because he's going to go after our opinions of ourselves 
Do nothing from rivalry or empty conceit, but in, here it is, humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He said, now have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, I want you to begin to think what's happening between the ears, interpreting what's going around you, specifically people, and the significance of people, the way you relate to people. Because face it, who creates most of the fear in my life? Who creates most of the anxiety in my life? It's relationships. It's people. So he says, this change that Jesus Christ has wrought in my life, I'm going to see it evidence in the way I actually view and treat people. Just like the mind of Jesus. Now, now notice what Jesus did here to manifest this humility. Notice he did the humility thing. But what is it that he did? Well, notice it goes on. He says in verse 5, Had this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born, this is Christmas, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he, here it is, humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now what, what did he do here, which was this humble thing? Twice it talks about humble yourself. He did the humble thing. He, what is it that he did? Well, look at the first thing. Notice it says here, verse 4, let others, he says, verse 5, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ, who, although he was in the form of God, the word there is morphe, means the internal quality. The equality with God. He was God's son. He was equal to God, yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But it says he made himself nothing, taking the form, it's still the word morphe, taking on the interquality of a servant, one who benefits others, being born in the schemata, the outward appearance of a human being. So he was born in the outward appearance of a human being, but his morphe was what of a servant. He comes to benefit others, and yet his morphe was still God. Notice it says, he made himself nothing. That is the translation, an attempted translation, to the Greek word kenosis, which is a term that, that, that theologians have been arguing about for years and years and, and years, because the word means that Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, he emptied himself of something, made himself nothing. Well, what did he leave in heaven that he didn't bring with him for Christmas? And some theologians say, well, he left his divinity in heaven. He, he, he left his godhood in heaven when he came to this earth. So when he was on this earth, he wasn't divine. Well, what's the problem with that? Have you ever tried walking on water lately? Or stopping a storm or feeding 10,000 folks with hardly anything? No, he never stopped being God. Well, then what did he leave in heaven that he emptied himself and made himself nothing when he came to this earth? Well, he tells us. 
In his prayer in John 17, when he's asking, he's talking to the Father, and we get to listen in. And he says, Father, return to me the glory that I had with you before this world was. He left his glory in heaven. What's glory? What did he leave? What's his glory he left in heaven? Glory is being recognized for who you are. Manifesting who you really are. And he left in heaven the recognition and the treatment of who he really was. God the Son. You see, in heaven, the host of angels, they all worshipped him. Hebrews 1 says, and the angels worshipped the Son. So when the Son was in heaven before Christmas... Everybody in the universe knew who the sun was. He would wake up in the morning, <laughs> like he woke up in the morning, to worship to holy, holy, holy. He was treated as God. He was treated and recognized as divine. But when he came to this earth, what was left in heaven? Nobody recognized he was divine. Nobody recognized that he was God, the sun. But he was in a manger, a feeding trough. People treated him with, with disrespect. People treated him as a mere man, less than a man. And Jesus never, never got angry over that because he emptied himself. In other words, the very first thing to do the humility thing is to not be all about you. He wasn't all about himself. His expectation wasn't the way he would be treated. You know, it's interesting. He's God. And he could demand to be treated as God, and no one did, and it didn't even bother him because he was going to do the humility thing. It wasn't all about him. And yet we, we get angry every day. I, I, I know I've shared this with you before, but some of you are new because I tell when you clapped, it wasn't nearly as much fun as last time, you know. So half, half of you don't have an idea who I am. But it's okay because I'm really fun, and you'll, you'll get to know that eventually. But the fact is, is this, when's the last time you got angry? No, no, don't share it, but just when's, like, you know, yesterday, this morning, some of you right now, because I don't like your attitude, Daryl. I mean, uh, I'll tell you why you're getting angry. It's not righteous indignation. We, we pretend, no. We get angry for one of two reasons. We get angry either because we're not being treated with the significance and the importance and the respect that we feel we deserve, or things aren't going our way. That is, things are not happening according to my will on this earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> so we get angry because the way we are not treated with reverence and respect, like we think we should, or our will is not being done. You want to know why we get angry? Let's just cough it up. We get angry because we're not being treated as a God. That is our arrogance. That's what you, to separated us from God in the first place. That is our flesh. We have this addiction to it's all about me, to myself. And so my whole life is about getting people to treat me with respect and getting things to be done the way I want. And, and this creates fears, and I have anything but joy. And this creates unrest, so I have anything but peace. Because I'm addicted to it. And so when it doesn't happen, I get angry, I get mad. What's the humility thing? What did Jesus do? He had the right to get angry because they were not recognizing and treating him with the significance and importance. But that was the first thing he released. So the first thing of the humility thing is my mentality between my ears and when I interpret everything is this is not about me. 
This is not about the way I'm treated. And this is not about my will being done. It's not about me. Well, then what is it about? Well, look at the second part of this humility thing. What did he do? Notice Paul already gave you a clue when he said in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or empty opinion about yourself like you're a god, but in humility, here it is, count others more significant than yourselves. Now notice it says, let each of you look only at the interests of your own, but also the interests of others. Jesus maintained the morphe of a servant. Why did he go to the cross? He said he humbled himself and he went to the cross even to the point of death. What was that all about? Did he have a need to go to the cross? Listen, Jesus read the booklet on crucifixion. He knew it was going to hurt. That's why the night before he said, Lord, can this cup pass from me? Can we come up with another way here? But not my will, but thy will be done. No, it wasn't about him. What was significant to him was us. And our interests, we were separated from God, worshiping ourselves, indifferent to who God is, indifferent to anything God has to say, and therefore we were lost and we were going to hell. We were going to be catapulted into outer darkness, separated from our Creator forever. And God was concerned about our well-being. Jesus was concerned about our success, our health, our well-being. And that's why Jesus Christ went to the cross to make a provision for our forgiveness. The Father made the provision for our forgiveness by having his Son, through obedience, go to the cross. And even though he deserved no death, he died in our place. And it was all about us. He did the humility thing. It wasn't all about him. It was all about us. And that's why he says, if I'm going to follow Jesus in this humility thing, i got to first number one. Daryl, you got to start removing your expectations that it's about the way you're treated. It's about getting your will done. About getting your way, your agenda. Daryl, it's not all about you. Then the other half of the humility thing. But Daryl, it is all about everyone else. It's about what can I do to help you be successful? What can I do to make you great? What can I do to bring you closer to your creator? What can I do to show compassion and relieve some of your suffering? What can I do for you so that you can come under God's favor and blessing? I've been in ministry over 40 years, full time, a little blood on my tunic here, and I've learned one thing. You're not going to do one thing that we talked about this last 20 minutes. None of you. You're not going to do any of this. And I'll tell you why. It's called the Whiffen Principle. Have you ever heard of the Whiffen Principle? The Whiffen Principle is what's in it for me. We are just so wired that we are so concerned. Our flesh is crying out right now that I'm going to be lost on this thing. Let me get this straight, Daryl. You're saying I don't have to have the expectations and be grabbing and be demanding the way I'm treated with respect and get things done the way I want? And you're telling me I'm supposed to be about making everybody else successful around me? be all about and concerned and absorbed with everybody else doing well? Excuse me. Hello. I'm going to be left alone. I'm going to be really hurt on this thing. 
Well, if anybody should have been concerned about being left alone, if he's saving us from going to hell, does that mean Jesus goes to hell? He should have been a little concerned from that when he said, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. Where are you going to send me? And listen how the father responded to the humility thing when his son did it. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God did not forget the Son because the Son did the humility thing and was humble. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, now humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Here's the risk. And in due time, he will what? It's a promise to you. He'll exalt you. I always felt sorry for our sound people. As long as things were, were, were going well, everybody ignored them. Now when something went wrong, everybody was mad at them. And I was thinking about that. Boy, they, 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 their goal is to be forgotten. But that doesn't feel too good to sit there and... Is there anybody in there? Now, to, to, to sit there and feel forgotten. And I remember years ago, I don't know if it's still there, but I, 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 I taped a verse and, and, and taped it right on the little thing there. It's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, where it says, And God will not forget your love for the saints and your good works for them. God will not forget what you've done in loving others. God makes it clear the way he wants us to love him is by loving each other. And God will not forget those who are loving him by loving others. No, don't worry. It really comes down to whether you believe God is and God does actually, actually keeps his promises to his own or are you a practical atheist? That's really, that, that, that's, that's up to you. I, I tend to believe and trust him. I, 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 now being, you know, president of a seminary, that means I'm smart and humble. <laughs> I want to teach you, I want to leave you with a Hebrew word. I want to teach you a Hebrew word. My prayer is this one Hebrew word. The Spirit of God will burn it on your forelobe. You'll remember this humility thing. It's not all about you, because it wasn't all about Jesus. It's all about others, because it was all about us. The Hebrew word describes how God wants us to understand the way he views us. I know this because back in Exodus 33, remember Moses goes up Mount Sinai and he says, God, show me your glory. God, what is it about you you want us to know? God says, I'll tell you what I want you to know about me. And he tells us about his compassion and graciousness and slow to get angry and forgiveness. But he twice, he uses this one Hebrew word to summarize this is what it's all about. This is how your God feels towards you. And, and, and it's, just, it's, it's been translated loving kindness, compassion, compa all kinds of different things because it's kind of a mystery word. The word is hesed. Hesed. H-E-S-E-D with the accent on the first E. Hesed. Because the word actually describes one who is all about the well-being of another. One who's all about the well-being of another. That's the term God uses to describe himself 
in his relationship to us. And that's why, would it not make sense? That's what he would want us to be described as in our relationship to everyone else. What is the humility thing? It's, not, it's something you do. It's not something you are. And because it's something you do, then that is because you now are. That didn't make any hard sense at all, but it was a nice try, Daryl. The point is this. If I can just remember, Hesed, say it with me. Hesed. Say it again. Hesed. Now, don't spit this time. Say it again. Hesed. If we can remember that word, then just remember, what is the humility thing? It's not all about you, but it is all about everyone else. And don't be so fearful. The whiff of is God will exalt you in due time. Because if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, He, He will exalt us. You won't be forgotten. Heavenly Father, I would pray that we would not do the foolish thing and walk away from the very teaching of the Apostle Paul, given to him by the Spirit of God, given the very revelation of the Son himself. Lord, if we can learn anything about the life of Jesus, he wanted us to learn this one thing. And so, Father, may we, may we begin to do humility and dislodge ourselves from this addiction of self that creates so many of our fears and robs us of any sense of rest. Oh, Heavenly Father, give us the faith to trust you on this. I ask this in the name of Christ, that we might deepen as disciples and followers of Jesus. This we ask in the name of Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. And walk worthy. God bless you.